0: All right, well, as we come to the Word of God, I would invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, for this third message entitled, How to Stand Firm, How to Stand Firm. Today, we will conclude looking at Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11, but the theme on how to stand firm will continue on through the end of the chapter. So, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, are... Primary text would be verses 10 and 11 today, but follow along as I read verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. "...as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish." Paul's purpose in writing these things, as he says in verse 1, is to provide a safeguard for the believers in Philippi. His aim is to anchor our souls in Christ, as we just sung about. In chapter 4, verse 1, uh, Paul concludes all of chapter 3 by saying that this is how you stand firm in the Lord. In a world of chaos and constant change and pressures on many levels and from many directions, what we need is stability and security. We, like the Philippian church, are always facing pressure from external sources from the world and internal pressure experiencing conflict from among believers to one degree or another. The world wants us to conform to its system whether it's naturalism or humanism or another philosophy or false religion. Like the Romans and the Jews who uh, came together against the Lord Jesus Christ and against his church, atheists, world religions, and false teachers are always in one accord against those who worship the true God and believe in his word. They try to pressure us into their own mold of morality and their narrative of history, their priorities, their lifestyle. Those whom you love could threaten you with a loss of relationship. Governments can threaten the loss of freedom. Employers can threaten the loss of opportunities or even your job. Schools have become a significant pressure point for Christian students and teachers and administrators as they're pressured to celebrate and to perpetuate and participate destructive lies about gender and sexuality. In this category of the world, I would put false teachers who, even though they find a home in the church, they are outside of the church. Uh, This week I went to christianbook.com and they were having a three-day Bible sale. Sorry, I think it's over now, but uh, that was a great thing. Three-day Bible so Wonderful. You scroll down a little bit on the page. Featured author. One of the most notorious false teachers in America today, Joyce Meyer. I looked at their list of best-selling books, and they had a lot of great books. But intermingled with that was books by Joyce and a number of other dangerous, if not false, teachers like Sarah Young and others. Whereas secularists and world religions try to push and shove believers into their mold. False teachers sweeten their teachings with enough truth to lure us into their uh, fold with our lack of discernment. And so we must stand firm against external forces that would move us away from Christ. Then there's internal strife and conflict among believers that can discourage and divide us. Conflicts can be incredibly unsettling to the soul. It can lead to lost sleep and anxiety and even hesitancy to go to church. Losing trust in fellow believers or especially leaders is a tool that the devil uses to bring an end to fruitful ministry and even create doubts in people about their faith. And so in the midst of conflict and disagreement and strife, we need to stand firm such that We can work through our differences in a loving and unifying way. So to help us stand firm in the Lord, Paul here in verses 1-11 to gives us three stabilizing measures that we must take. The first, which we considered two weeks ago, is that we must discern friend from foe. We must discern friend from foe. If we're going to avoid being tossed to and fro by deceitful schemes, we have to be able to discern who is a trustworthy speaker of truth and who isn't. And because many sound so good, this requires vigilance. Did you know that not every person who claims to be a Christian is a Christian? Did you know that there are many best-selling Christian authors who are sending people to hell through their false teaching? I mean, with some exceptions, almost every. Preacher, you will see on TBN, is a false teacher. But they command significant audiences and they bring in tens and millions of dollars. Now someone might say, is it true that they can really be false teachers? I mean, could so many people be duped by them? Yes. Jesus said this in Matthew seven twenty one to 23 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me, he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So many who profess Christ and appear to be doing wonderful works of God, They're actually enemies of Christ. So we must beware. We must watch out for those who would lead us astray. The second stabilizing measure, which we saw last week, is that we are to lose everything for Christ. We are to lose everything for Christ. In verses 4-9, to we learn by Paul's example that we must come to grips with the reality that God is not impressed with us when we come to Him as if we have made ourselves worthy of His acceptance. Because of our sin, we have a tendency toward grandiosity. We think we are far better than we really are. And so we naturally come to God with an elevated sense of self-importance. But what we don't realize is that to God, we are like one who's been living in a sewer. And we are saturated with the stench of waste. And so when we come to God... Wrapped in our own righteousness, before we can get close enough to hand Him our resume, He casts us out of His presence and into utter darkness. But in contrast to our repugnant offering, Christ is a treasure beyond value. He is beautiful and majestic and glorious and utterly pleasing to God. And the amazing truth is that even though we deserve to be banished forever, God proclaims to us that if we would take off our unrighteous robes and look to Christ, God Himself will put the righteous robes of Christ on us. And He will treat us as if we had lived Christ's life. He will accept us, not on the basis of our deeds, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And this secures us in life because it guarantees our eternal life. It reconciles us to God and it makes us part of His family. We never need to fear His wrath because Christ has fully paid for our sin on the cross. We do not need to fear losing our inheritance because our inheritance is intrinsically tied to the wealth of Christ. We are set for eternity and there's no greater power than God who can come in and steal us away from Christ. We are in Him and He has us in His grip. So we must discern friend from foe and we must lose everything for Christ. That brings us then to our text for today. The third stabilizing measure Paul gives us here is that we must live in the power of Christ. We must live in the power of Christ. We find this in verses 10 to 11, which is our focus for today. In Matthew 7, as after Jesus warns about those false teachers, which I read earlier, He gives us wisdom on how to not end up like them. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So hearing and acting on the words of Christ is what brings stability and strength in the storm. But we can only do that if we are living in the power of Christ. By way of personal testimony, here in verses 10 and 11, Paul gives us three ingredients that fuel That create the fuel for living in the power of Christ. Three ingredients that create the fuel for living in the power of Christ. The first ingredient is knowing Christ. The second ingredient is experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection. And the third ingredient is participating in His suffering. Knowing Christ, experiencing the power of His resurrection, and participating in His suffering. Now as you look at verse 10 you can see those statements right there. But I want you to notice the last verse or excuse me the last phrase of verse 10 where he says being conformed to his death. Being conformed to his death. That statement is like the agent that makes these ingredients gel together. So as we walk through these ingredients we'll see how being conformed to the death of Christ relates to each one. And then we'll close today by seeing how living in the power of Christ has its ultimate aim to persevere until the end when we will be raised from the dead. All right, the first ingredient to living in the power of Christ is knowing Christ. Look at verse 10. Paul says that I may know him. Can't really say it any simpler than that. He wants to know Christ. Doesn't all, Paul already know Christ? Someone might say. After all, he wrote to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So doesn't that mean that Paul already knew Christ and that he taught, determined not to teach anything other than Christ? Well, yes, Paul clearly knew Christ, but Paul knew Christ as one can know an infinite person. Whatever he knew about Christ, however much he knew about Christ, there's always more to know. Salvation took place for Paul, as it does with all people, with knowing Christ. When Paul was on his way to Damascus, the glory of God, a light brighter than the sun, shone around Paul and cast him off his his horse. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul was stunned and confused and he said, who are you, Lord? And the response came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That revelation from Christ to Paul was his conversion. He came to know Christ In 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, Paul describes unbelievers as those whose minds are veiled such that that they cannot know Christ. He said, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if the devil blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they can't know Christ, how does anyone come to Christ? Well, he goes on. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So when Paul or you or I were saved, what happened was the Spirit of God removed that veil from our eyes and the light of the knowledge of Christ entered our soul, creating spiritual life. So when we pray for unbelievers, as I did earlier, that's what we pray for. We pray for God to remove that veil that exists on their mind so that the light of the knowledge of Christ can enter into their hearts. And when that happens, they see the person of Christ in His glory, in His beauty, and they are compelled to believe in Him. But at that point, no matter what a person has known about Christ, the journey of knowing Christ has only begun. I mean, keep your finger here and turn with me over to First Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Having a growing knowledge of Christ is not an optional pursuit for the believer. I would say this it is the very center of Christian living. Look at what Peter wrote in his letter where he aims to strengthen all believers against persecution and false teaching. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Paul says this, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Christ Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Everything pertaining to life comes through the knowledge of Christ. In other words, you cannot live the Christian life apart from a growing knowledge of Christ. Now look at verses 4 to 8. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, supply knowledge. And in your knowledge, supply self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing they render you neither useless nor unfruitful, listen, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having a true and growing knowledge of, the, of Christ will result in the fruit that he describes there. And so it is that with his closing words in this letter, as he instructs Christians along the same lines as Paul does in Philippians 3, he ends his letter in chapter 3, verses 17 and 19, saying this, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So I say again that a growing knowledge of Christ is the very center of Christian living. This is why when Paul writes to the churches throughout Asia about the purpose of church ministry, he writes in Ephesians 4 that we are to exercise our gifts and do the work of the ministry quote, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Paul wants to know Christ. And that should be our pursuit as well. There is no other subject more worthy of our attention and our learning than Christ. And there's no bottom to the well of of the knowledge of Christ. In Colossians 2, Paul says that his burden for believers is that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ Himself. In whom, he says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Knowing Christ is not just about knowing what He did, and it's not just about knowing what He said, The relationship that we as believers have with Christ is not one of historical interest. It's a relationship of the living God whose spirit dwells within us and who is active in our lives. Anyone can know things about Christ. Uh, They can know facts about him. They can know what the Bible says about him. But only Christians can have a growing experiential knowledge of Christ. Right? Anybody can know that Christ is a Savior. But only believers can know Christ as their Savior. You can know Christ as your Savior. You know and can have a growing understanding of what it means that Christ rose from the dead and, excuse me, died for your sin and rose again on your behalf. You were his enemy, and yet he set his love on you and poured out his grace and mercy. On you. Those are truths that the new believer can know, but the oldest believer cannot fully comprehend because of the infinite glory of Christ and the pervasive horror of our sin. We grow in knowing Christ as Savior as we increasingly become aware of our sin in our lives. And season after season of life, we find new dark corners of our soul that Christ already died for, but which we were unaware of. And so we're always finding new reasons to, to praise and worship Christ because He took care of all of our sin, past, present, and future. Well, speaking of our sin, we can grow in knowing Christ as our advocate. In 1 John 2.1, it says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In the courtroom of heaven, as it were, God sits as judge. And the devil is the prosecuting attorney. And while the devil is making his case against us, our advocate, Christ Jesus, keeps calling out, Objection, Your Honor, I paid for that sin. And so it is that our adversary who stands before God accusing the brethren day and night, Revelation 12.10 says, He loses every case in which Christ is the advocate. A believer can grow in knowing Christ as their mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now this does not mean that God has a negative disposition toward us and that Christ is always running interference between us. No, this is Christ's saving work that He accomplished when we were God's enemies. And it's His mediating work that ended the hostility between us and God. He changed our heart and He satisfied the wrath of God bringing us together. Christian, do you know Christ as your shepherd? Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. There is a treasure trove of truth in knowing Christ As our shepherd, this afternoon you can read on your own time John 10 or Psalm 23 and remind yourself of the privilege of having Christ as your shepherd. As you grow in your knowledge of Christ, you can increasingly know Christ as your teacher. In the second half of Ephesians 4, when Paul turns his attention to the transformed life of the believer, he calls us not to live like unbelievers, saying, You did not learn Christ this way if indeed you have heard Him and been taught in Him just as the truth is in Jesus. What he meant there is Jesus didn't teach us to live like unbelievers. Jesus taught us a different way to live. Jesus was often called a teacher during His life and He said this in John 13, You call Me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. So during his life, Jesus taught us with his words. And of course, we have his teachings uh, significantly in the scripture. And we also have his example, his, his way of living, even his way of suffering. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.21 regarding unjust suffering, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps. So Jesus is our teacher and the Bible is full of His teaching that we can grow in. On a more personal level, we can grow in knowing Christ as our friend. As Jesus prepared his disciples for his departure, he said this in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made them known to you. What Jesus revealed prophetically to the disciples and to all of us, he did not reveal impersonally as many of the Old Testament prophets did. Rather, he speaks as a friend giving us an inside scoop as to who the Father is and what is in the mind of the Father and what's going to take place in the future. Savior, advocate, mediator, shepherd, teacher, friend. These are not mere titles. These are just a few of the ways in which Jesus Christ engages and relates to the believer actively and personally in which we can grow to know Christ more in these ways. Now, in addition to these, we can also grow in knowing more about the person of Christ. In the different seasons and situations of life, we can experience the attributes of Christ that meet us in our time of need. For example, are you weary and heavy laden? Jesus invites you to come to him because he is gentle and lowly of heart. Are you burdened by your sin? Jesus comes to you graciously and mercifully. Are you struggling to remain faithful? Jesus remains faithful and ever true to you. Are you grieving and sorrowing? Jesus is with you as a man acquainted with grief and a man of sorrows. So, how do you grow? in your knowledge of Christ? Well, a chief way, as Paul says at the end of verse 10, is to be conformed to His death. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, when we studied that passage, we saw that Christ took the form, He conformed Himself, if you will, to a slave, and He humbled Himself to the point of death. He became like one of us, and as a result we he came to know us intimately and experientially and now as Elias reminded us earlier he is our sympathetic high priest. So if we are to know Christ we must become like him in his death. That means we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. In those moments when we want to defend ourselves, when we want to demand our rights, when we want to get what we want or have things our way, we are to submit to the Father's will and call to die to ourselves. And when we do that, we will get a taste of what it was like for our Savior to die to Himself on our behalf. That bitter flavor of self-denial helps us to know just a little bit better what kind of God we have. It will elevate for us His faithfulness, His humility, His love, and His sacrifice. And the more experiences that we have of that, we will, uh, that they will help us identify with Him. And the more we will be compelled to worship Him, because whatever we suffered, He suffered more. Whatever, he, whatever we experience, He experienced more. Whatever we lose, He lost more. And He did it for the sole purpose of saving you and me. Growing in the knowledge of Christ's work on our behalf and, in his, and his character manifested to us helps us stand firm because He never changes. He steadies us, He grips us, He comforts us and directs us. And learning from him and imitating him is the joy and privilege of the Christian. Have you been content with your knowledge of Christ? Have you lived in such a way that your life shows you've learned about as much about Christ as you desire to know? Well, here's a couple ways to evaluate yourself. Are you reading his word regularly? A regular diet? of personal intake of God's Word, not just devotionals, not just the verse of the day, but a meaningful portion of Scripture feeding on God's Word is a primary way of knowing Christ more. A second way that you can evaluate yourself is are you taking advantage of the various ministries of the church that would help you know Christ? As we saw from Ephesians 4, growing in the knowledge of Christ is a corporate effort. And so aside from Sunday services, are you taking advantage of growing disciples' classes or small groups or women's breakfast or men's uh, men's breakfast? Are you in fellowship with other believers regularly in His Word, growing in the knowledge of Christ? One final point I'll give you to evaluate yourself is in the various circumstances of life, do you ever stop and ask yourself, what would Christ have me to do in this moment? How would Jesus have me respond to this person or to this circumstance? If that never happens, that's a strong indicator that knowing Christ has not been a vital part of your life. So, beloved, pursue the knowledge of Christ. As Peter said in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second ingredient is to experience the power of of Christ's resurrection. If you want to live in the power of Christ, you have to experience the power of His resurrection. Look again at verse 10. He says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. This does not refer to the resurrection that that comes to us after we die. That's the subject of verse 11. To know or experience the power of His resurrection means to be energized with the same divine power that raised Christ from the dead. In the words of Ephesians 6.10, it is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Or in the words of Colossians 1.11, it's to be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. We need divine power to live because the life that God calls us to is impossible to live on our own strength. You may be familiar with the promise in 1 Corinthians 10.13 where Paul says, God will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond your ability to handle. And some have looked at that promise square in the face and say, that's not true. There are some things that are too much for a person to handle. And I would agree if that verse meant that you, on your own, apart from God, without any of the resources that God gives to you, would have the ability to handle anything. But that's not what that verse means because that verse is in the Bible and the Bible has a rather grim view of the things that we can do on our own. In fact, the previous verse says, therefore let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Meaning don't be so proud so as to think you can stand on your own. We are in a spiritual battle and there are unseen forces at work that require God's strength to defeat. We're also living in a world system where we are constantly bombarded by temptations and ideologies that can only be resisted by divine power. The most significant pressure is from our own flesh that is always trying to pull us back to that wide gate and the easy path. Whatever is self-preserving and self-elevating and self-affirming. Jesus himself lived and died and rose again in the power of God. Think about this. The the rejection and the mocking and the unbelief that the Jewish leaders uh, had and and did, did not end when Pilate agreed to crucify Jesus. One would think that they had finally gotten the, the, the verdict and the sentencing that they wanted, and so maybe they would have hurried back to the temple to do their Passover duties. But instead, they followed Jesus out to Golgotha, scoffing as they went. And as he hung on the cross, they continued to mock him and hurl insults at him. Matthew twenty-seven forty-two records some of their words. They said, he saved others. He cannot even save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. That phrase, he cannot save himself, literally means he does not have the power to save himself. That was a direct contradiction to what Jesus said in John 10 18. No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So, if there was ever a time for Jesus to prove to the Pharisaical leaders that he was the Messiah, This was it. He could just come down off that cross and they would believe, right? No, that's not right. If Jesus had come down off that cross, the Jewish leaders would have done with that evidence the same thing they did with all the other undeniable evidence that Jesus had shown them. They would have attributed that power to Satan. Friends, unbelievers cannot be converted by evidence. Nevertheless, what they perceived as a lack of power was actually the very power of God keeping Christ on the cross. The Son of God was not at the mercy of death. Death was at the mercy of the power of God. Listen, and this is critically important to understand our own experience of the power of Christ's resurrection. As God, Jesus had the right, He had the authority and the power to avoid all of the torture He experienced at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. It would have been just for Him to judge them on the spot and cast them into hell. But, in submission to the Father, He exercised divine power by withholding judgment and enduring unjust treatment and ultimately death. The natural and easy path for Christ would have been to bring condemnation and let His wrath bear down on His enemies. The hard path, the one that required a unique manifestation of power, was to let them kill Him. And because Jesus gave up His life, the Father then exercised divine power by raising Him from the dead. Both the power to live and the power to die is granted to believers. Turn over to Romans chapter 6 with me. Keep your finger there in Philippians. Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is working through the implications of the gospel and the believer's new relationship to sin. And he leans on this principle of the believer's union with Christ's death, and resurrection to show that the power of sin has been cut off and we have a new power to live for God. Look at verses 1 to 8. What shall we say then? He says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, since we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin." Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. I know I'm I'm stopping mid-sense there in verse 8, but we could potentially read through the whole chapter. But Paul's point of of this statement is this. Apart from Christ, we were slaves to sin. We were bound to it and powerless against it. But because we have died and been raised with Christ, we we now have power over sin, which means that we have the power not to sin. But that power is not of ourselves. It is the power of God flowing through us. Now we'll get to how to access that power in a moment, but know this, believer, sin does not have power over you. It is not your master anymore. You may not feel it, but it's true. By the power of God, you can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Someone might say, surely Paul didn't need this reminder. Wasn't he like the most, as the, the most sinless person one can be in this life? No, no, he wasn't. Not at all. For, th- for the three of you who are not in Pastor Dave's class, You you can listen to this morning's message or lesson on Romans chapter 7. Once it's posted that even the great Apostle Paul needed the power of God to overcome sin in his life. But he and you and I don't only need power to overcome sin. We also need divine power to positively live the Christian life. I mean, when you think about the armor of God that Paul de- uh, describes in Ephesians 6, standing strong in the Lord and wearing the armor of God is not an isolated aspect of life separate from all the other aspects of life that he addressed in Ephesians 4-6. to Rather, the armor of God is how he strengthens us in all of life. To be a member of the church, you need the power of Of God. To be a member of society where ungodliness runs rampant, you need divine power. To be a godly husband or wife or child, you need divine power. If you are going to love your enemies and stand for righteousness, you need divine power. If you're going to be gentle and humble and kind and forgiving, you need divine power. So, how do you access and experience divine power? Well, the answer comes back to the Last phrase in Philippians 3:10: "Being conformed to his death: To experience a surge of God's power, you must die. You have to disconnect from everything that you think in life will preserve your life. You need to let go of your expectations and desires. You need to let go of your rights and your sense of fairness. You need to die to your bodily appetites and cravings. None of that will sustain your life. And all of it will prevent you from experiencing the power of God. God has so designed us that when we consciously and purposefully die to ourselves for the sake of Christ, it creates a vacuum that the Spirit fills with His power. So when you discard your own standards of living, You can live by God's standards because there's no more tension between the two. When you die to your rights, you can find strength to love your enemies. When you let go of your need to guard and protect your reputation, you can find the ability to bless those who curse you. When you die to your own sense of justice, you will be empowered to forgive and to pray And to serve those who sin against you. The reason we don't feel the power of God to live is because we're trying so hard to hold on to our lives. But Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The power that raised Christ from the dead will come to you when you lose your life for the sake of being conformed to his death. The third ingredient to living by the power of Christ is to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Look again at verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings The word fellowship there, koinonia, means to share in and participate in. To participate in the sufferings of Christ means to join with Christ in suffering as true followers of God. Jesus suffered because he aligned himself with God and did not conform to the false religion of his day. He spoke the truth and he lived according to the truth, even though it it didn't conform to the beliefs and lifestyle of the religious leaders. Jesus was hated for what he taught and how he lived. And so it must be for us. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So suffering for Christ is suffering with Christ. It's suffering for the same reasons and in the same way as Christ. Just as Christ was betrayed, we will be betrayed. Just as Christ was lied about, we will be lied about. Just as Jesus was treated unjustly, we will be treated unjustly. These things should not surprise us. To the degree that we are suffering for Christ, We should rejoice. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice, he says. Be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In affirming God's standard of righteousness and morality and truth today, You will be called a racist, a homophobe, a transphobe. You will be labeled a hater of humanity, a denier of someone's personhood. You will be mentally ill. You may get fired from your job. Your employees may rise up against you. You might even get death threats. That can happen today, right now, in our world, in this country, if you simply affirm in a public forum that you believe God made mankind male and female and God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. Now, in other situations, refusing to lie, cheat, or steal would get you in trouble with your coworkers or teammates or other kids in the neighborhood. We participate in the sufferings of Christ when we do what's right And when we affirm what is true and suffer for it. 1 Peter 3.17 says, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Why? He goes on, Because Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So participating in the sufferings of Christ is how we are conformed to his death. Hebrews 13 says, "Therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him," he says, "outside the camp, bearing his reproach." He suffered for us and so we suffer for him. We are conformed to his death and we participate in his suffering, Beloved, if you want to live in the power of Christ, you need to live by these three ingredients. You have to have an ever-increasing knowledge of Christ. You need to experience the power of His resurrection, and you need to participate in His sufferings. These ingredients are fused together and fuel your life as you are conformed to the death of Christ. Let's draw draw this to a close with a quick word from verse 11. Paul says there, In order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. From the dead. The ultimate goal of standing firm is to persevere until the end. Though it may sound in some translations like living out the truths of verses 1-10 to are what earns one the right to be raised from the dead, as if you're saved somehow by your works. Clearly, that's not true. That would contradict everything Paul said. Rather, he's affirming that knowing friend from foe, losing everything for Christ, and living in the power of Christ is how he and you and I will endure and persevere until the end and we will eventually be raised from the dead. If you don't do these things, you may end up proving to be like those who claim to know Christ but whom Christ didn't know. Our lack of discernment or misplaced confidence or powerless living will prove that we called him Lord, but we lived as though we were ourselves were Lord. If we don't persevere, we will be like those who initially believed, but whose faith was choked out either by suffering in some cases or by the pleasures of life in other cases. And so Jesus said in Matthew 24 many false prophets will arise and mislead many but lawlessness or excuse me because lawlessness is increased most people's love will grow cold but the one who endures to the end he says will be saved so how do you endure how do you stand firm in the lord you discern friend from foe you lose everything for christ and you live in the power of christ let's pray Heavenly Father, as we consider these truths, we recognize our utter dependence on you. We cannot do anything of ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. Lord, if there's anyone here who's trusting in themselves, would you help them to realize that? That they are but a filthy garment before you. Help them to discard their self-efforts and to put their confidence in the death, and resurrection of Christ for their forgiveness of their sins. And cause us, Lord, to walk faithfully, to stand firm, and to endure by your grace and in your power. In Christ's name, amen.